0: a new sermon series, The Reality of Heaven and Hell. The Reality of Heaven and Hell. You know, anytime the, there's headlines about conflict and war and rumors of war and uh, uprising in the Middle East, it can cause people to start thinking about a couple of things. It can cause people to start thinking about the end times and, and uh, are we living in those days. I can tell you this with certainty with confidence, we are closer now than we've ever been. (laughs) I mean, I could tell you that chronologically, we are closer. Uh, We don't know the day, we don't know the hour, but we certainly should be responsible for being prepared. To say, I don't know the day and I don't know the hour does not give you an excuse not to make preparations, not to start thinking about end times, not to, uh, it, it shouldn't give you an excuse to, oh, well, prophecy is confusing, so I just won't go there. It's really something during these times that should cause you to get more in God's Word and to get more of God's Word in you. You know, sometimes you can go through the whole Bible and you can read it from Genesis to Revelation, but if it doesn't get in you, then it didn't do what it's supposed to do. So don't just get in the Word. Make sure the Word gets into you. But as we kick off this sermon series about the reality of heaven and hell, as I've been preparing for this, a couple of things have stood out. First of all, the belief in a literal heaven and a literal hell has dropped off in the most recent surveys. Um, I noticed trends. And when you look at uh, graphs, you, you notice these trends and you notice that there may be a, a, a consistency and it may be stable and then it may have a drop-off or a spike and you always want to look at that. I noticed that during the 1950s, Uh, the number of Americans who called themselves Christians during the 1950s averaged around 85%. 85% of Americans in the 1950s described themselves as Christians. In 2012, the last numbers that we have uh, from Gallup, in 2012, uh, the number of self-identifying Christians in America had dropped to 66%. 66%. From the 1950s to 2012, it had dropped that significantly. And because of that, now you can wager as to why it changed. There was certainly a cultural shift. There's certainly been a change in the demographics of America, and that does have an effect on this but also because the number of people identifying as Christians has dropped off. See if you don't find this interesting. The number of Americans who believe in heaven, who believe in heaven, and this doesn't differentiate or identify it as a Christian heaven or paradise and Islam or nirvana for the Hindus and Buddhists. It doesn't identify it differently. It just says, do you believe in heaven? The number of Americans who say they believe in heaven in the most recent survey of 2019, 67% of people believe in heaven. In the 1950s, I looked this up, that number was 92%. So there's been a... A tremendous downfall in the number of people believing in heaven. I do find it humorous that the number of people who believe in hell is always going to be less statistically than those who believe in heaven. I don't know if that's wishful thinking or what, But even in this survey, the number of people that believed in heaven was 67%. The number of people who believe in hell was 57%. So a 10 percentage point drop-off or difference in the number of people who say, yeah, I believe in heaven, but no, I don't believe in hell. Maybe that's just you don't want to believe that there's a place of eternal torment or damnation, but that doesn't change the reality of it. When you fall, you may not like gravity but that your opinion of gravity does not have an effect on the principle of gravity. Amen? Amen. So, some, as we go through this series, hopefully uh, you will see that both heaven and hell are literal places. We're going to talk about them. We're going to study them and talk about what the Bible says about heaven and hell. Because we don't, we're not here in church. We don't assemble together together. To understand what their uh, philosophers say about heaven or about hell, we don't gather together to find out what the medical community believes about heaven and hell. We don't gather together to find out what scientists, chemists, or biologists say about heaven or hell. We gather in assembly as believers. We gather together to find out what God's word says about heaven and hell. This is our plumb line. This is where we get our beliefs. This is our foundation. And if we don't stick to it, then it's no wonder why the world is so confused about Christianity, about heaven, about hell, because they're looking in all the wrong places but we're going to go to God's Word, and we're going to see what it says. I hope to show you something about heaven or hell during this series that perhaps you had never really thought of, like today, for example. Today, in our kickoff of this sermon series, we're going to be looking at something that's kind of interesting to me. Did you know that there are things in hell that should exist in every believer? There are things in hell that should exist in every believer. Now to find that, go to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, beginning at verse 19. And as you're turning your Bibles to Luke 16 and verse 19, I want you to know that when you see subtitles in your copy of God's Word, whether you're looking at an iPhone or an Android or you're looking at a, a Bible itself, you'll notice there's subtitles. Now those subtitles are not divinely inspired. Those were placed there by the editors. Uh, the different translations will sometimes put subtitles to help you understand it. segueing into a different topic from the previous verses. My subtitle in the New King James Version that I'll be reading from this morning, I don't like. In fact, I don't agree with the subtitle, and I don't know if your translation has a subtitle, but mine does, and it says the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. So a parable is an illustration that is giving that has a spiritual truth. A parable is a story. And Jesus often taught in parables because it helped his disciples learn what he was trying to say because he would use analogies or symbolism from agriculture, from the the wildlife, from nature. He would use that to teach them a spiritual truth. But a parable is a story. And the section that we're about to read is about a real person. A rich man who's nameless and Lazarus, a beggar, who is specifically named. If this were an allegory, if this were just an illustration or a parable, then to name them would not have been important because after all, it's just an illustration. But the fact that they're named, specifically Lazarus' name, tells me that this is about two individuals that are just as real as you and I are and that Jesus obviously knew them but even his disciples and the community would have known this rich man that he referenced and Lazarus. So I don't like that it's called a parable. But now that I've got that out of the way, if you'll stand in honor of reading God's Word from Luke chapter 16, beginning at verse 19. And notice the way he even words the beginning here. There was a certain certain rich man. He doesn't say there was a rich man. He's telling there was a specific certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died, And was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great gulf or chasm fixed. So that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Let us pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, help us today to understand the reality of heaven and hell. Help us to understand and appreciate the reality of eternity. Help us to make preparations today if we haven't already for where we will spend eternity because eternity is a long time to be wrong about something. Eternity is a long time to just wish or cross our fingers or hope that our good deeds will outweigh our bad and that somehow we'll get into heaven. I want people that are here today to not only understand the reality and how heaven and hell are literal places. But I want them to be settled today where they will spend eternity, once and for all. God, we give you all the praise, honor, and glory. Hide me behind that rugged cross. These people here today don't need to know my opinion. They need to know God's Word. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for showing up and being in this place. Speak to us now, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So... Many things stand out in this text, but I want you to pay attention to a few things. Uh, First of all, it describes the rich man's location different from Lazarus' location. Two different locations, two opposite conditions, because it described uh, Lazarus' position as him being carried or escorted by angels to be comforted, to be received in Abraham's bosom. In Judaism, they understand Abraham's bosom as a description uh, of heaven, of paradise, because they look to Father Abraham as their divine father. They look to him as the patriarch of their Jewish faith and of their people, who left his land and established Canaan. Uh, which was promised to Abraham and all of Abraham's descendants. So the Jews revere Abraham. And we find that the location of Lazarus, this man who used to be a beggar, who used to suffer, who used to just want some crumbs, just some crumbs, and the dogs would come up and lick his sores as he's covered and afflicted and suffering during life. But in the afterlife, he's comforted and he's escorted by angels to this place called Abraham's bosom but then it tells you about the other location it says that that rich man also died and was buried doesn't talk about an escort doesn't talk about comfort in fact it mentions the opposite and being in torments verse 23 in Hades a real location he's tormented he's there and he's suffering and it says he lifted up his eyes And off, way in the distance, on the other side of this chasm, on the other side of this divide, he's suffering and he recognizes someone from his life in the afterlife is being comforted. And he says, oh, just allow him to take his finger and dip it in the water and touch my tongue because I'm suffering so. Part of his torment was the recognition that he's suffering While someone that he literally stepped over, someone that he literally had to walk around as he's begging, as he's afflicted and covered in sores, that man, Lazarus, is now being comforted. And part of the rich man's punishment was to recognize, hey, I stepped over that guy. I lived luxuriously. I lived in wealth and excess. And I had everything. And this man laid at my gates. This man suffered. But now, he's comforted. And I'm in torment. Just let him dip his, the tip of his finger and let it touch my tongue. Can you imagine being that afflicted, that suffering, that you would, be, you would say, just give me just a tip of your finger with water to touch my tongue. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a literal place. Just as real as Beulah Land Baptist Church, 3179 Sligo Road, Haughton, Louisiana is, hell is real. Hell is real. Heaven is real. It may be something that causes you in your doctrine or theology to get uncomfortable, to think about people suffering, to think about people that are tormented. But listen to me. Just as watching the news this past week and seeing the horror from the Hamas terrorists and what they caused to innocent civilians, not military, not soldiers, not in a conflict of war, but to go after innocent civilians and just as you wanted to turn your head and not watch those atrocities in Israel, just because you don't want to see it, just because you don't want to talk about it, doesn't make it any less real. Doesn't make it any less real. You may not like it. You may pick this side or that side, but the suffering is real. The atrocities are real. And I know that many times the reason why there's a 10% drop-off in this survey from people that say, yeah, I believe in heaven, but there's this 10% drop in the number of people believing in hell because they're not comfortable with admitting that there's a literal place of torment and evil. So the first thing that I notice that I see in Scripture that is in hell that should exist in every believer? Tears. There are tears in hell. There are tears in hell. It tells you in Scripture, in verse 24 specifically, it says that he cried. He was so tormented that the rich man cried. Now, for a prideful person that thought he was self-made, that thought he had all this money and all this wealth. It mentions purple, which is the color of royalty. It mentions his excess and all that he had. You know, death is a great equalizer. (laughs) Denzel Washington is not the only equalizer. Death is the great equalizer because you see, in life you may have a lot or you may have a little. But at death... There's a great equalizer. We're all on common ground. This rich man, after he had lived with all of his wealth and excess, it describes Lazarus' death and how he, Lazarus was received by the angels and comforted by the angels. Listen to what I'm about to tell you. As a pastor, as a chaplain, and even as a law enforcement officer, I have had some would call it the burden In many cases, it has been a privilege and an honor. But I have been at the deathbed of many a person in a hospital, in a vehicle, and in other places where I've watched people, including my own family, my own sister, my own mama. I've watched them cross over. I've watched what happens when people go from this life to the afterlife And I need you to hear my heart when I tell you there is a tremendous difference in the person that is a believer in Jesus Christ crossing over and the peace that surpasses all understanding and the comfort to the friends and loved ones that sit there and watch as their loved one goes over. There's a tremendous difference because not only have I been there when those who knew Christ cross over, but as a chaplain... And as a pastor, I've had to be there when someone that didn't have that relationship with Jesus, that didn't have that connection with Jesus. And I've watched them cross over. And I've watched their feet. I've never been able to get this image out of my mind of their feet threshing and kicking at the bed and them literally trying to move out of their bed, even though moments before that they were in a, a coma state and they were not responding And as they cross over, it was not peaceful. And it was not comfortable for me. It was not comfortable for anyone in that room. The crossover is different for the rich man and Lazarus. The crossover is different for the believer and the unbeliever. I've seen it. I've experienced it. Lazarus was comforted and received and escorted by angels. As a believer in Jesus Christ, when you cross over, you will not cross over alone. I know. We were just talking about it just a minute ago. If we are living in the end times, on one hand, there's some excitement. And on one hand, there's some, uh, maybe some anxiousness about it. Because you just don't know. It's like going to a new place. You've never been there before. You may have seen pictures of Hawaii. You may have seen uh, other people's experiences from their Facebook posts. But until you go there and see it, you just don't know what to expect. And I get that. I really do. But I need you to know for the believer in Jesus Christ, you are not alone. You are comforted comforted by heavenly escort. You are received by angels. And they're there to... Any, any anxiety that would have been there is erased because of the comfort that they give you. How did they give it? I don't know. But I just know the Bible says that, that Lazarus was comforted and escorted by angels. He didn't cross over alone. Because how many of you know sometimes... You remember when you were a little kid the first day of school? Mm-hmm. That big knot in your stomach? Ugh, that thing in your throat would catch sometimes. Like, oh, I don't know about this. Or how about when you were, as a parent, taking your child that first day? A pre- Man, Lord, have mercy. I had snot bubbles coming out. Parker <laughs> turned and looked at me at the last second. Don't do that. Don't, don't look. Don't look. <laughs> I'll come running. I'll get you. I'll, I'll take you out of that preschool. <laughs> I want you with me. <laughs> so... The crossover sometimes going to a place that you've never been to might for some people cause you to be a little nervous. Well, in the case of a believer and in the case of Lazarus, a heavenly escort is there. But now look at what it says about the rich man. It says the rich man also died and was buried. Just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. I mean, it is straight and to the point he died and was buried. No escort, no comfort and being in torment in Hades, a specific place, a specific literal place, and it says he was tormented. In fact, the word is basanos. Basanos in the Greek, which means torture. Whereas we go through this series, we're going to read other verses that talk about the isolation The isolation is the worst part of hell, being separated. And you know that you're separated. You are separated from others and you are separated from God. And that separation, that isolation, psychologists tell us, is the worst part about being in solitary confinement in prison. The worst part of solitary confinement, being alone, being separated. Well, it says that he was in Hades. The Greek word is Hades. And the Hebrew word is Sheol. And both of those words are for the, uh, the word that we use, grave. Grave. So you have Hades and Sheol, meaning the same thing, grave. I need you to understand as we go through this series, you're going to learn, if you don't already know this, that Hades is different from Gehenna. Hades is different from Gehenna. Gehenna is hell. Whereas Hades, are you ready for this? is a holding cell for those awaiting judgment. And that in and of itself is a scary thing because if you've ever been a part of our wonderful criminal justice system, one of the hardest things for people that go behind the wall, that's what we call it when you're behind the wall, um, the hardest part is not knowing what's going to happen next. When will I be arraigned? When will I have a court appearance? When will a lawyer come and talk to me? When can my family visit me? When will I have money on my books? These are questions as a probation and parole officer I get asked every day, three times a day because they don't know and that creates a lot of anxiety. You are not sentenced, you are not arraigned and you're waiting for your first court appearance which a lot of times is a bond hearing and you get that out of the way but you still don't know anything. You still don't know how long your sentence is. You still don't know how long before you go before a judge. You still don't know when you'll have a trial. You still haven't talked to a lawyer. So imagine this rich man who went from people at his beck and call, wearing purple and fine linen. Get me this and fetch me that. Now he is in Hades, a holding cell. Not Gehenna, not hell, but a holding cell awaiting his eternal judgment. It is a place of torment. It is a place of torture. But in this case, Hades is differentiated from Gehenna. It is a holding cell. And it mentions that he cried. There's tears in hell, and there should be tears in the life of every believer. In fact, Psalm 34 and 18 reminds us, the Lord is near to those who are brokenhearted. We sang about that just a minute ago. It's amazing how our music and our message go together without any planning. It's all the Holy Spirit. The Lord is near to those who are brokenhearted and saves such as have a contrite spirit. I don't see enough brokenness among Christians. Over lost people, over our culture, over Israel, over injustice, something ought to get you worked up. Something ought to light a fire under you, and it ought to move you, and it ought to motivate you. There's tears in hell. And there should be tears in the life of every believer. But not only should there be tears, here's another one. Pay attention to verse 27. It says that the rich man said, I beg. Some translations say, I plead. Some translations may... uh, Vary on that word beg, but it literally means to pray. I pray ye therefore, Father, that you would send him to my Father's house. He is literally pleading and begging. He's crying in tears, and he's literally praying, Father Abraham. I mentioned earlier the importance that Abraham plays as a patriarch of the faith. In early Judaism, and even in modern Judaism today, it is not uncommon to hear a Jew reference praying to Abraham, praying to Abraham. There's prayer in hell, and there ought to be prayer in the life of every believer. Here's a guy who is in Hades, and he's begging, he's pleading, he's, he's praying. But listen to what I'm about to tell you. In Hades, and eventually in Gehenna, the prayers are too late. Because at that point, whether you are in a holding cell or whether you are in the place of eternal torment, you are separated from God forever. You are in perpetual pain. There's this great chasm that's mentioned in Scripture, this great divide. You can't cross over. Here you are praying and pleading and begging, but listen to what I'm about to tell you. It's too late. Your prayers should have been voiced this side of eternity, not then. Your prayers for your neighbors, for your family members, should have gone up today, not then. Some lost people, in fact, believe more in the power of prayer than some people sitting in these seats today. There are lost people that believe more in the power of prayer. And I'll prove it with a documented legal case. There was a bar in Texas that had just opened, and it was the first bar they had just passed in this county uh, to allow uh, a bar or that type of establishment to be open. And the local church went out there, and they prayed over this bar. In the parking lot, they circled up, joined hands, and prayed. And the bar owner took pictures of the church praying, because he's mad about it. He knew they didn't like him, but he didn't like them either. It went both ways. And so he was upset about that. They prayed. It was a Wednesday night. They moved their prayer meeting to the parking lot of that new bar. And they prayed. Y'all, on Friday, excuse me, Thursday night into Friday morning, there was a thunderstorm. And lightning struck that bar, set it on fire, and burned it to the ground. You know what that bar owner did? He found him a lawyer. I don't know if it was the man with a hat or the man with a patch. I don't know, but he found him one over in Texas. And that lawyer took this case to court and said, that church caused this fire. And you know what the church's lawyers and legal representatives said? We had nothing to do with that. We had nothing to do with that. But wait a minute, you gathered in the parking lot. And you pray. Yeah, but we didn't pray for lightning, we didn't pray for fire, and we didn't pray that it would be shut down. We just prayed that God, you'd do something to stop this bar. The bar owners, lawyers, argued in court that his client had more faith in prayer than those church members. Because that bar owner said, I see what happened when church folks gather and pray. My bar gets set on fire and it's closed. But the church's legal representatives argued in open court that they simply prayed in the parking lot. But what happened was not a direct result of their prayers. Now look, I know the church probably didn't want to pay for the property damage. And one could say that they just used the legal system to their favor. But I'm going to tell you something. I think the reality is a lot of people aren't willing to admit that there's power when we pray. And there's corporate power when we pray together on Sunday nights and on Wednesday nights. There's something about God's people coming together and praying over something. But the lost people out there believe that when you and I pray, things can happen. How many of you have been approached by a coworker that you believe is lost or that doesn't like talking about church, but when they go through a trial, when they've got to get treatments, or when they got a family member that's suffering, hey, I need you to pray. I need you to pray for me. You're a Christian. Would you pray for me? Yeah, you you got a, It's a local call for you. Will you will you tell your father? Isn't it funny how they go from not wanting to talk about church, not wanting to talk about Christianity, not wanting to talk about the Bible, but they will hunt you down. Like a hitman from the mafia to find you to ask you to pray for their grandma. Do you believe in the power of prayer? That rich man, he did. Because he's begging and he's pleading, but it's too late. Not only should there be tears in the life of every believer, there's tears in hell. Not only should there be prayer in the life of every believer, there's prayer in hell. But there also should be passion for lost people in every believer passion for the lost. Look and pay attention to verse 28. This is this is unbelievable. This man, the rich man, is so passionate about his brothers that look at what it says, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them lest they also come to this place of torment. That means it's a literal physical place. I don't want them to be here with me. I don't want them to be in this place of suffering and torment that I'm in. I'm so passionate about my brothers. Please, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. Are you passionate for lost people? You can sense the desperation and the passion in the rich man's prayer. If we really believed what we claim to believe, we'd be more passionate about witnessing We'd be more passionate about praying. We'd be more passionate about serving. We'd be more passionate about giving. But here's the thing. After death, it's too late. Our time to share is now. Our time to go tell someone is now. Our time to give is now. Our time to serve is now. I think one of the biggest torments in hell, not only does it last for eternity, but it ha- you have all the time in the world to think about what you didn't do and what you should have done. And you can make a biblical argument that that rich man who's in torment in Hades could clearly, clearly see on the other side of that chasm, of that divide, that Lazarus who used to beg at his gate is now being comforted. That's part of the torture of knowing that he's being comforted, you are in torment. Your time to tell somebody is now. Your time to pray is now. Your time to get broken and contrite before the Lord is now. The rich man was in agony. Lazarus was comforted. Eternity is not that far away for anyone in this room. Did you know that? Eternity is not that far away for anybody in this room or watching on Facebook. So my question for you then is, will you be comforted or will you be tormented? Are you broken? Are you sad? Are you hurting for the world and the condition of the world? Are you truly dedicated to praying now and being passionate now about lost people and about doing something today, about going today, about giving today, about serving today Sometimes, life can hit you in the middle. i you just punch you right in the gut and uh, make you realize that we take so much for granted. We take our health for granted. We take our time for granted. We take people for granted. Well, I believe God wanted you to see today and this scripture of the rich man and Lazarus that the time to do something is now. Procrastination is a tool of the enemy. Let's pray.